Well, praise the Lord. Amen? Yeah. Amen. I wasn't about to have somebody not pray for me. Uh, I need all the prayer I can get, as, as all of us do. Well, thanks, Chris, for praying for the preaching of the word this morning. Thank you, music team. A flute was up on stage today. Praise the Lord. Well, let's continue our worship now as we turn to the book of Psalms, and specifically the 60th Psalm. We have made our way up each summer consecutively from Psalm 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, all the way up to Psalm 60. So here we are. If you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 60, this is God's Word. For the choir director... According to Shushan Edith, a mictum of David, for teaching when he struggled with Aram Naharam and with Aram Zobah, and Joab returned and smote 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. O God, you have rejected us. You have broken us. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land quake. You have split it open. Heal its breaches, for it shakes. You have caused your people to see hardship. You have given us wine to drink that causes reeling. You have given a banner to those who fear you in order to flee to it from the bow. Selah. That your beloved may be rescued, save us. Excuse me, save with your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness. I will exult. I will portion out Shechem and measure out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is also the helmet of my salvation. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbowl. Over Edom I shall throw my shoe. Make a loud shout, O Philistia, because of me. Who will bring me into the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you yourself, O God, not rejected us? And will you, O God, not go forth with our armies? Oh, give us help against the adversary. For salvation by man is worthless. Through God we shall do valiantly. And it is he who will tread down our adversary. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the tremendous privilege of coming together and opening up your holy and inspired word. We pray that it would change hearts this morning, change our hearts through even this text. As has been said, we're so grateful to see our dear sister Janie here this morning, and we're grateful for her example of faith, trust in you, even as she went through some very difficult health through some very difficult trials, Lord. We're grateful to see her here. Thank you for bringing her here. Thank you for bringing all of us here. Thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Well, we come this morning to the final psalm of David that has direct or alluded to historical context. We can see from the title, which is going to be very important, it's when he struggled with Aram Naharim and Aram Zobah. 
which would put this historical context in the first 10 years of his reign as king. Now, any reader of the Old Testament, particularly 1st and 2nd Samuel, along with 1st and 2nd Chronicles and 1st Kings, knows that this was a very fruitful and prosperous time in the life of King David. We've spent much of this summer in the middles of 1st Samuel, uh, middle chapters of 1st Samuel here. We, we spent time in the cave Adullam, in Gath, in the country of the Philistines, with Saul, with the dreaded Doag, and other dogs in hot pursuit of David. But this 60th Psalm is, is after all of that. This is, these are much more prosperous times for David here. In fact, in just the first few chapters of 2nd Samuel, the reader can clearly see just how much things had changed for the king. Chapter 1. David, Saul is dead. Your great enemy, even though David admired and respected Saul's position as the Lord's anointed, is dead. And Amalekite comes and says, yeah, I saw him. He was fallen on his own sword, but he wasn't dead yet, not until I finished him off. David then kills that guy for slaying the Lord's anointed with no remorse. Then in chapter 2, he goes to Hebron. He sends messengers to Jabesh Gilead saying, tell these people, Saul, your Lord is dead. And also, the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. And right there, just like that, just just like that, two chapters in, David is anointed king of Judah. Same chapter. David and his army defeat Abner, the commander of Saul's army, along with 360 men of Benjamin. Samuel says in chapter 3, Now the war between the house of Saul and the house of David was long, but David grew steadily stronger, but the house of Saul grew steadily weaker, or weaker continually. David increases, Saul decreases. David and Abner make a covenant. David says, okay, I'm not going to kill you. But David's commander, Joab, thinks Abner is going to trick David, so he kills him instead. David then curses his own commander, Joab. He mourns the death of Abner to the point where he fasts and weeps, leading the people to, quote, take note of it. But it was good in their sight, just as everything the king did was good in the sight of all the people. Things are going very, very well for King David after many years of fleeing for his life and hiding in caves. Now... His greatest personal threat is eliminated, and he is the king of Judah. Things are going very, very well here, but the fun doesn't stop there. Chapter 5 says, Then all the tribes of Israel, not just Judah, but the elders of all the tribes, come to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led out and brought in Israel. And Yahweh said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David cut a covenant with them in Hebron before Yahweh. Then they anointed David king over Israel. Guess how old he was at this point? 37. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. In Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. Then David lived in the fortress and called it the city of David. That's Jerusalem. Now listen to this. And David became greater and greater. 
And Yahweh, the God of hosts, the heavenly host, was with him. Could things be going any better for this king? Answer, yes. <laughs> the arch enemy of Israel, the Philistines, plot to come against him. So he asked Yahweh, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And Yahweh said to David, yep, go ahead. For I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. That's exactly what happens twice. In chapter 6, David brings the Ark of the Covenant into the city. He knows how monumentally significant this, this moment is. As the king of kings, the God of all Israel was now set to dwell in Jerusalem. As the true theocracy was established over the now united kingdoms of the north and south. And so elated was David here, so elated... He danced in the streets of the city and before Yahweh with all of his strength, practically naked, by the way. Everyone loved to see it, especially the women. Well, everyone except for his wife, Saul's daughter, Michael. She was not happy about this. She thought he made a fool of himself. But listen, but David said, listen up, you buzzkill. It was before Yahweh who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of Yahweh, over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before Yahweh. And I will be esteemed even more lightly than this and will be humble in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be glorified. Yikes. Don't try that with your wives, men. Second, second, second Samuel chapter 7. Oh, the sweet, sweet seventh chapter here where a covenant is made. A covenant which would see the throne of David endure forever. Yahweh says, in your house, your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. A son is promised to David. Yes, an immediate fulfillment in his son, Solomon, who would build a house for the ark. But more than that, an eternal son. One who could bring about the actual fulfillment of this covenant. Uh, the Son of God. The promised Messiah. Then we come into the time period for our psalm today here. Okay, this is the time period. In chapter 8, David takes complete control of the main city of the Philistines. He strikes Moab and he captures the cities up and down the Euphrates, including Aram Naharam and Aram Zobah. The Aramaeans. This is the same time period. The same Aramaeans in the superscription of Psalm 60. The same struggle. The same time. The same time of all this prosperity and victory. The same time period where Samuel said, quote, Yahweh granted salvation to David wherever he went. Yahweh granted divine help to David wherever he went. Kings were bringing him boat, boatloads, arm, uh, handfuls of gold and silver, which he set apart with the gold and silver from the other nations and kings he had subdued, from Aram, Moab, the sons of Ammon, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. So David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Aramaeans in the Valley of Salt. 6,000 more than Joab in our superscription, okay? Same time. Then he placed garrisons in Edom. 
And all Edom he placed garrisons, and all the Edomites became servants to David. And Yahweh granted salvation to David wherever he went. So why Psalm 60 then? <laughs> why, why Psalm 60? Where is the anger of God? Where's the rejection of God, the the cause for lamentation before God in Psalm 60 in the midst of all that prosperity we just read about? In all honesty, I have no idea. I don't know. It's not in 2 Samuel. The reason for this brokenness is not in Chronicles. It's not in 1 Kings. It's only right here. It's only in the superscription of the 60th Psalms. It's, it's, It's only right here. But something happened here. Something happened in Jerusalem while David was battling the Arameans in the north here. And the only plausible explanation is that the Edomites made a somewhat successful surprise attack on the city from the south. Okay, He's away in battle. They come up from the south. But again, it's, it's, it's only here in the superscription. This is the only historical record here. Derek Kidner said the same. He said, but for this psalm and its title... We should have had no inkling of the resilience of David's hostile neighbors at the peak of his power, end quote. I can't remember if I put a slide on that. Did I not? Let me say it again. Derek Kidner said the same. But for this psalm and its title, we should have had no inkling of the resilience of David's hostile neighbors at the peak of his power, end quote. The Edomites have apparently attacked Jerusalem in David's absence, leading David to send Joab, his commander, down south to the Valley of Salt, where, upon his return, he killed 12,000 of them. And then David came back after that, either killing 6,000 more, taking that number to 18,000, which is what we see uh, in 2 Samuel, or slaying an additional 18,000. But in the interim, you have Psalm 60, which where David identifies the ultimate cause, okay? Namely, at the height of his success, God was angry about something that was taking place in that city. So God chastised them. He disciplined them, leading David to cry out in verse 1, perhaps during his ride down south following Joab, O God, you have rejected us. Oh, God, oh, Elohim, all supreme, almighty God, you have spurned us. You have cast us off. You you broke us. You have been angry, David writes, like we talked about last week. Some folks don't believe the God of the Bible ever gets angry. You believe that? We see it right here. You have been angry, oh, God. Restore us. Now, wait a second. Why in the world is God angry with his people Israel? Why is God actively breaking his people down here in this psalm? Make no mistake, these are his people. David even says in verse 3, you have caused your people to see hardship. You have given us wine to drink that causes reeling. Why is the Lord causing so much brokenness to come upon his people? And, And why now in the midst of all these great conquests? Well, again, I don't know. I don't know. I can't tell you why. Because the text doesn't tell us why. 
Even the consensus of the commentators of the Edomites attacking from Jerusalem from the south is mere speculation. They don't know that. We don't know that. Yeah, I wish I could be more helpful with the historical context here, but I just can't do it. I, I, I just can't make something up to give us all that nice feeling of closure. <laughs> it's a great feeling. <laughs> I can't do it. What we do know is that something happened in the time when David was fighting up north and Joab returned to kill 12,000 Edomites. So, I wonder, was it a small group of people in Jerusalem that the Lord was angry with? So therefore, the whole city had to pay? Is that what it was? Maybe it was just one guy. Maybe one guy was doing something. One guy who brought the anger and rejection of the Lord upon his chosen nation. This wouldn't be out of the question, of course. Anyone who's ever read the book of Joshua knows full well about the sin of Achan. Very similar circumstances. Israel was under the command of Joshua and just about to dominate the godless men and women of the whole region. They were just about to take the land promised to them by its rightful owner, the Lord of hosts. The Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, the Jebusite were all about to be given into Israel's hand. The Ark of the Covenant was going before them, crossing over the now dried up river, Jordan, Right? They had already taken Jericho. In fact, Yahweh even told them, listen, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Even the Egyptians are going to stop pursuing you here. Nothing but milk and honey from now on out, folks. Praise the Lord. We're going into the promised land. Same good times. Same victory. Same conquest. Same prosperity. But then comes Joshua chapter 7. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to things devoted to destruction in Jericho. Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. Therefore, the anger of Yahweh burned against the sons of Israel. Side note, it's never good when your grandpa and your great-grandpa are brought in to confirm your identity. Like, just so everyone's clear here, it was this Achan. You know his granddaddy. Right? (laughs) But one guy, one guy who goes against the clear commandments of the Lord, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. In other words, conquer the city. Conquer the city, but don't take any of the spoils for yourself. Don't be tempted to take any of that silver or any of that gold for yourself. If you do, you're going to bring trouble on the whole camp. Next day, amidst all this victory, amidst all this triumph, amidst all this prosperity, Joshua sends out a band of men to take Ai, men who were so confident because of all this divine blessing. They said, listen, Joshua, don't even send up the whole army. Just send a few thousand guys. We'll be good. We'll We'll knock these guys out in in just a few days. We'll wipe out the city in no time here. Don't even send up the whole army. Next thing you know, this army is getting chased out of Ai. They lose 36 soldiers, and everyone, everyone, including Joshua, is standing around like, wait, what? What what, what just happened? What in the world just happened here? Oh, God, you have rejected us. You've broken us. You have been angry with us. 36 guys, 36 men won't come back to the camp or or to their families tonight. 
Maybe he cried out, as even David cried in our verse 3, Oh, restore us. You have made the land quake. You have split it open. Heal its breaches, for it shakes. You have caused your people to see hardship. You have given us wine to drink that causes reeling. Now, a lot of the commentators think that this mention of wine here is an allusion to the cup of God's wrath, the cup of the wrath of God, the wine press of the wrath and rage of God. As it says in Revelation 19, a cup of anger that Yahweh pours out upon his creatures. I tend to think that this reference here speaks more of the uh, after effects and shock of having experienced a major catastrophe. Have you ever seen that? You ever seen that after some natural disaster, for example, a hurricane, an earthquake, a tornado? You remember those big tornadoes that they had in Arkansas and Kentucky last year? Go watch the aftermath of those videos in the neighborhoods here. People, notice how people are just walking around. They're just, they're just kind of like walking around stunned. They're, they're, they're dazed. They, like, uh, they're in shock. It's the same with, with bombings, mass shootings. Everybody's just like walking around in a, in a fog here, and it doesn't matter who. Regular citizens, police officers, first responders, military, everyone's just kind of bewildered. It's a state of bewilderment, almost like they're staggering drunk. That's what we saw with Joshua. Joshua tore his clothes, fell on the earth on his face before the ark of Yahweh, crying, Alas, O Lord, why? Why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan only to give us into the hands of the Amorites to make us perish? Yahweh says, well, someone did what I told you not to do. And Joshua's like, who? <laughs> who would do that? And Achan says, over here. Truly, I have sinned against Yahweh the God of Israel, this is what I did. I took a mantle, I took a couple hundred shekels of silver, a bar of gold, I coveted them. I wanted them, so I took them. I buried them right over there in the ground under my tent. And the result, 36 men lost their lives. Achan, dead. Achan's wife, dead. Achan's sons and his daughters, his children, dead. His animals, dead. They're all dead, dead, dead. First they stoned him. That was kind of a weak throw. First they stoned him. <laughs> that was like a left-handed throw. And then uh, they burned their bodies. For one guy's sin, so many suffered. Kind of like with Adam, right? One man sins. One man sins. Everyone born of his seed is cursed. We're doomed. But we don't have an Adam for Psalm 60. We don't even have an Achan for Psalm 60. Frankly, we don't have any idea what causes suffering and staggering and David's need, needing to come back and do damage control. But we do know this. God's people aren't exempt from his chastisement, are they? Are we exempt from God's chastisement? Negative. Those who are in Christ are certainly spared from his wrath and even his anger, but not his chastisement or his providential ordering of circumstances to drive him, his people back to himself, even by his breaking them down, even when things 
All things seem to be going so well in our lives. We live in a fallen world, do we not? A fallen world full of fallen people. Even apart from our own sin, our own transgressions, we still have to deal with the fallout and ramifications for the sins of others, right? I mean, one application here, even if we aren't privy to all the historical facts in in this matter are pretty clear, if there's someone in the church, even large C, church universal, who is, well, for lack of a better term, acting a fool, or maybe more theologically accurate, not living, living in accordance with how the spirit indwelled man or woman of God ought to live, well, it can have a pretty detrimental impact on the entire body, can't it? Oh, yeah. I've come across quite a few Aikens in my day, in my brief time in ministry, abusive men, manipulative women, False teachers, wolves, agenda pushers, those with impure or improper self-serving motives, even those who claim to be believers, claim the name of Christ. If, if people are actively and unrepentantly engaged in that which is displeasing to the Lord, well, it can have a detri- detrimental effect on the entire congregation, on the entire body. If one of us suffers, the whole body suffers. Or the entire church Right? The, the whole bride of Christ. We see this, uh, even see this with so many pastors who get caught up in sometimes decades-long affairs. Money-hungry. Plagiarism. Self-serving false teaching along with other scandals. It's a, bl- a black eye to us all. Lord, please spare us from such atrocities as this. That's why the Lord provides Holy Spirit-appointed shepherds, elders, overseers of local churches, so we can hopefully aid the saints who have sincere desire to turn from their iniquity, or so we can provide protection from those who may have intentions of harming the flock. Many threats, including ravenous wolves masquerading in sheep's clothing. However, overseers and elders, pastors, whatever you want to call them, aren't the only resources the Lord provides for his flock. In times of distress and defeat, even unexpected distress and defeat, he gives his people something much more precious than other sinful men. He gives them a banner. Something they can look to whilst on the field of battle. When it looks as though they're about to be destroyed when they're on the proverbial ropes, when they're reeling, when they're staggering, as were Joshua and David and the people of Israel. Look at point number three, verse four, where David writes, you have given a banner to those who fear you in order to flee to it from the bow, Selah. That translation of verse four, eh. This translation leaves so much to be desired, in my opinion. This is where I love the king's English, Lighter. It just seems to capture the significance and beauty so much better. Jake, can you put that up there, please? Yes. I did this for... Now, is that easier to read for you? Okay, that's what I thought. It's... Yeah. It's like us reading Times New Roman. It's just so clear for you. 
<laughs> well, that's what they always say. If the king's English was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. <laughs> All right. But look at the importance of this. <laughs> I'm not saying it in the accent. Don't worry. But listen to this. Thou hast given a banner to them that fear thee, that it may be displayed because of truth. Selah. Pause and meditate. Because of the truth. The truth. In a world full of liars spewing their lies. Divine truth is the banner that God raises in order for his people to flee to when they're being crushed by the battles in this life. The battles even with the evil forces, the rulers, the authorities, the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul says the Christian fights against these forces. Therefore, we ought to Take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. Having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Same thing. Same banner. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. Amen? Amen. Fear not, O man or woman of God. His kingdom is forever. David says, you've given a banner to those that fear thee as a rallying point in the face of attack, the NLT says. I like that even better. Verse 5, that your beloved may be rescued, save with your right hand and answer us. Very likely, Jerusalem is under siege. On one hand, we see you with us, Yahweh, giving us great battles and victory. But on the other hand, you're breaking us down in defeat. You're bringing us over the Jordan. You let us take Jericho. Then you let 36 of our guys get killed in Ai. You allow us to have spiritual growth in the church, not just numerical growth, but spiritual growth. Then all of a sudden, some major pastoral uh, issue arises, and there's significant collateral damage And you know what? David affirms here in Psalm 60, along with Job, it's all from the Lord. It's all from the Lord. The victories and the losses, the triumphs and the defeats are all from the Lord. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. So, what David was ultimately saying, what Joshua was saying, and Likewise, what our leaders, what the elders of this church ought to say when the hard times come our way is, Lord, you have broken us. You have caused your people to see hardship. So, Lord, make our transgression known. Restore us. Save us. Rescue us. Answer us. And then, all together, we flee in sheer desperation, yet with full assurance and confidence to the banner that he has raised. What is his banner of truth? The answer, my brothers and sisters, is found in the first part of verse 6. Point 4 in your outlines. 
God has spoken in his holiness. God has spoken. God has spoken is the banner. David will go on to share an oracle, a prophecy in verses 6 through 8 here, a word from the Lord, a desperately needed word from the Lord, which may very well have been spoken long before, maybe in the time of Abraham, maybe in the time of Moses or Joshua. Maybe it was given to to Nathan, the prophet of David, while he was seeing the devastation in Jerusalem firsthand, or maybe it was given to David himself. Interestingly, the very same words, carbon copy, are found in Psalm 108, which leads me to believe this wasn't a one-off oracle, but it could have been. Either way, the banner in times of distress, in times of defeat, remains the same, even now, some 3,000 years later. God has spoken in his holiness. God has spoken the word of the Lord, the word of truth, the, the truth that abideth still even if they kill our bodies is the word of God. In David's case, in Israel's case, uh, with all the nations that surrounded them and hated them, God raised the banner of his word. Second half of verse 6, I will exult, I will portion out Shechem and measure out the valley of Succoth. That's both sides of the Jordan River. He says, they're mine. They belong to me. But I will give them to you, David. I will give them to you, Israel. What's mine is yours. What's yours is mine. Shechem, Succoth, they're yours. Yahweh continues in verse 7. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is also the helmet of my head. Judah is my scepter. Strong territories. Ephraim will protect. Judah will rule. Well, we know that that's David's line, Solomon's line. Why, the very Christ himself will hail from where? Judah, the tribe of Judah. Look how Yahweh then diminishes once great cities in verse 8. He says, Moab, it's my washbowl. It's where I wash my feet. Over Edom, I shall throw my shoe. It's another way of saying they're my slaves. They're my servants. The Edomites do my bidding, including putting away my dirty shoes in the corner of my house. This is all figurative language here uh, used to demean and devalue them. Finally, make a loud shout, O Philistia, because of me. Now, David had pretty much conquered the Philistines by this point, so this is God saying, yeah, exactly. I've already given them into your hand. They shout because they realize that the God of Israel reigns supreme. Now, it's important to note that this particular banner in Psalm 60 was for David, and it was for the people of Israel, for worship in the tabernacle of, uh, or worship in the temple sanctuary. It was not for us specifically. Yet, the ultimate banner remains. The banner of truth still abides. God still speaks in his holiness. For us, no prophets. There are no prophets no seers, no visions, no dreams, no new revelation, revelation from God today. Nobody's saying, oh, God just told me this. If they do, you should run away. <laughs> For us, God has spoken to us in his holiness, and he has spoken in his word. In his word, in his scriptures. 
even Joshua and David depended on the written word of God. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 4, Thus saith the Lord, So now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgment which I am teaching you to do, so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which Yahweh, the God of your fathers, is giving you, because it's his, but now he's giving it to you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of Yahweh your God, which I am commanding you. What word is he talking about? The scriptures. Proverbs 30 and 5 and 6. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he reprove you, and you be proved a liar. That truth spans all the way throughout, even to the very end of the world as we know it. Revelation 22, I bear witness to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Let me ask you something this morning. Does this sound like a banner that you can flee to and place your trust in during times of trouble? Absolutely. Why? Well, the law of, the, law of Yahweh is perfect, David says in Psalm 19, restoring the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing in the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, even more than much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Are the words of this book sweeter to you than the drippings of the honeycomb? If not, I would implore you to cry out to Yahweh today and ask him to make it so. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Peter said the same thing a thousand years later. And we have as a more sure, uh, I think that's supposed to say testimony, the prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention as, a lamp, as, as to a lamp in a, shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. I butchered that here. And we have, as a more sure, the prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. He's talking about everlasting glory there. Jesus said, Father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. The scriptures are what they are. The truth given from God to you. Divine truth given to you even this very moment as it sits on your laps. And if it doesn't sit on your laps, there's some in the chair in front of you. Grab one and put it on them. This is the truth giver from God, the light, the lamp, the perfectly pure and authoritative, absolutely sufficient, absolutely infallible, absolutely inspired banner of God, which he 
raises for his people to flee to in times of trouble, in times of distress, distress, when the ground begins to sway and things begin to inevitably, inevitably start to fall apart in our lives here, whether corporately speaking, the fall of humanity or the fall of an army or the attack on a great city or unity within a local church here, within a local body, or individually. When, as the hymnist writes, when the darkness deepens, when your work is a grind, you can hardly put food on the table, the banner is there. When the marriage is struggling, when the kids walk away from the faith or away from you, when there are factions within a family, when relationships seem to be destroyed beyond repair, when someone you love betrays your trust or harms you in some way, the banner is there. When a loved one passes away, when a child gets sick or dies, the, the banner is there. Or when everything seems to be going great. When you're in a wonderful season of life and you can't imagine your circumstances getting any better only to go into a checkup and hear the doctor say, I don't know how to tell you this. Or I'm sorry to have to be the one to tell you this, but dot, dot, dot. In those times, the banner will be there. When a family member or a friend says, you know, I just don't believe what you believe, okay? And your heart breaks inside of you because you know what it means for their everlasting souls and you love them. And you don't want to go, them to go to eternal torment forever and ever. When you see so much pain and evil and oppression in this world, the banner is there. He's raised a banner. When some government official or some person in uniform comes to your home or your place of worship and says, you better not say that about this group or that group. You better not utter that name, Jesus Christ. It's offensive to the ears of our community and to our rulers. The banner is there. We preach the next text. When all around your soul gives way, the banner of God's word is all your hope and stay. Right? That's why I've been saying over and over again this summer, uh, this summer session in the Psalms, the word of God, not the word of man, not the word of man. We'll see here in a moment why you ought not trust the word of man, but the word of God is the banner that you can run to. You you can flee to, you can find safety and security, and you can find rest for your souls in. You can find refuge for all your troubles. And yes, I'll say it again, all of your troubles. Because unlike literally everything else in this fleeting and corrupt world system where everything is tainted and corrupted by sin, his words never change. Because the one who inspired them and revealed them, himself even, never changes. Yahweh never changes. Oh, thou who changes not. 
abide with me. God the Father never changes. God the Son never changes. God the Holy Spirit who breathed these very words which give his people, his beloved, his yachdid, the hope of eternal life, he never changes either. Therefore, his word never changes. My brothers and sisters, God has spoken in his holiness. Don't plug your ears. Don't plug your ears. Don't set this aside for the foolish temporal things of this world. Men, be men. Lead your families in the study of the word. Just read it. You don't have to give a 50-minute exposition every night. Did I hear amen, Lens? No. You don't have to give a 50-minute exposition every night. Just read it to your families. The power is here. The refuge is here. The, the banner in the midst of this broken life is here. Because the one who authored it reveals himself in here. David knows this. He knows it full well. So he writes a psalm, a mictum, a teaching to the people, to be put to music even, sung in the tabernacle, later in the temple sanctuary, but to all of the beloved as a reminder of where they need to turn in the best of times and in the worst of times. David, writing back from the struggle with the Aramaeans, writes, save with your right hand. In other words, save with your might. Answer us. He, he reemphasizes and drives home the reality that victory can only come from the hand of the Lord. Victory, even against the catastrophe, cat- catastrophe brought about by the Lord, can only then come from the Lord. This is where the victory has to come. In other words, Lord, save us, not so much from our enemies, but save us from your anger. God, save us from yourself. Call off the dogs, in other words. Deliver us from our enemies whom in your sovereignty you've allowed to break us. Is that offensive to anybody in here? Oh God, save us from God? Perhaps. But is it the truth? Absolutely. Is it an essential truth required in order to be one of the beloved? Absolutely. So then, does it really matter if we're offended by it? Absolutely not. If you reject this idea that David was asking to be saved by God from God, well, I'm afraid you don't have a very good understanding of the gospel. What do you think the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross saves us from? Or maybe better put, who do you think the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross saves us from? My brothers and sisters, we are saved by God, from God. We are saved by the grace of God through faith that is provided by God from the wrath of the same infinitely holy God who hates sin and will do whatever it takes to call his people to or back to himself including breaking them down to the point where they have no other option but to flee to the banner that he raises. Which is why salvation comes from God alone. 
The very thing David, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, closes this psalm with. Who will bring me, he says, to the fortified city? Maybe a nod to Petra in Edom there. Verse 10, have you yourself, O God, not rejected us? And will you, O God, not go forth with our armies? There it is. The brokenness came from your rejection of us. Therefore, our restoration must come from your hand as well. It says it right there, clear as day. Well, now look at verse 11 with your own eyes. I want you to see this with your own eyes here. You got to look at it. Else men, weak men will say that I made it up in anger. I didn't make it up. Look at verse 11. David says, Oh, give us help against the adversary, for salvation by man is worthless. A whole sermon could be given on that line. (laughs) Salvation of man is worthless. A whole summer series. (laughs) But we'll sum it up by saying, man fails, God prevails. Man will fail you every time. Why? Because man is finite. Man is mortal, limited. It's been said, even the best of men are men at best. We all die. You can't put your ultimate trust in something that dies. No, no. Salvation by man is worthless. Other other translations say the help of man is useless, vain, good for nothing. I'm just reading what it says. Don't put your trust in other men, ever. But only put your trust in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And may the basis of that trust be the truth that he has revealed in his everlasting word. That's why the hymnist says, When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. They will fail. God will not fail you. David closes here, through God we shall do valiantly, and it is he who will tread down our adversaries. And there you go, God wins all the battles, and God gets all the glory, just as it should be, right? All right, I'll close with this now. You must be saved by God from God. Your sins have separated you from your creator, and that sin must be punished. It will be punished. That sin must be paid for. And the wages of sin is not merely a broken life or a life of rejection, but it's death. And not just I I died, it's eternal death. Everlasting spiritual death, a torment in the lake of fire forever and ever for those whose sins are not paid for in this life. And there's only one way to have your sins paid for in this life to be restored to fellowship and to be reconciled to a holy God. And that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. Any other path is a path straight to everlasting destruction and hell. I just want to be straight up with you. But if you're hearing my voice this morning, and infinitely important, more important than hearing my voice, if, if you're hearing the voice of God this morning through his word, 
then you still have the opportunity to hear the gospel call and respond in faith. He said it himself. All who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. You want to be delivered from the wrath of an infinitely holy God? He raises his banner in his word, and he says to you this morning, come. Come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Where do we learn from him? The scriptures. For I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. Are, are your souls at rest this morning, eternally speaking? If not, I invite you to come to him, cry out, ask your tra- creator to forgive your sins through Christ's sacrificial death. Turn from your sin in his power. Surrender your life totally in full submission to your Lord. I implore you this morning to do so. He will save your soul if you come to him this morning. He will save your soul. Come to me, he says. For those who already have eternal rest, knowing full well that Christ has paid the penalty for your sin, I invite you to look unto his banner for every situation in your life and both the good times and the really, really bad times. Never, never forget that he has given a banner to them who fear him in order to flee to it repeatedly throughout the rest of your days on earth. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, pray with me now and we'll have Noel, the music team, including, I'm hopeful, of the flute. Close us in musical worship. Lord, we, we recognize the awesome weight of your holy and inspired word this morning, your word to us. We thank you for using David and Joab and the situation as an example to us that there is but one banner that we ought flee to when the ground beneath us gives way. And Lord, we're just here to say congregationally, as a body, it's a joy and a delight to flee to the banner of your word. Just as it's a joy and a delight to sing praises and worship the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we give you all praise, all glory, all, all honor, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.